this morning, and as Steve mentioned, our visitors are our honored guests, and we are uh, obviously especially excited excited to have Peter and Pui Fun with us, and uh, for the Deermans, it uh, really brings back a lot of wonderful memories of our time uh, spent in Malaysia, a much shorter time than we had uh, anticipated and shorter than we uh, wanted, but we're thankful for the time we were able to spend there, and the gratitude for the short time that we were able to spend there before the government situation changed is intensified because of being able to meet people like Peter and Pui Fun and to encourage them uh, uh, in our small way to uh, take on a little more uh, responsibility. I was telling Peter and Pui Fun, I'll never forget, we took them out to this very nice restaurant one night when we knew we were going to have to leave the country, and, uh, and uh, it was a very nice restaurant, and I think Peter and Pui Fun wondered, something is up here. Well, why are we here in this nice restaurant? But we wanted to butter them up, you see, <laughs> to, uh, to uh, spring on Peter the fact that we wanted him to become the, the new director of the Malaysia School of Preaching since I was going to be having to leave. And... Uh, we wanted to really, uh, we thought a steak, a nice thick steak would help with that. Yeah. No, actually, they didn't, need, uh, they didn't need that kind of encouragement. But we were happy to spend that evening together and to talk about uh, the future of the church in Malaysia at Klang. And uh, Peter did take on that responsibility with his good wife, Pui Fun, at his side as a great help me. And they have done nothing but great work uh, since then, and they were doing great work before then, uh, before we uh, even came to know them. But we love and appreciate them so very, very much. And uh, it was a great thrill to know that Peter was able to come to the Memphis School of Preaching, where I had been a student and been able to teach for a while as well later, and to spend those two years there, and then to teach there himself some for a while before going back. And I already have heard comments this morning from uh, several of you who have been most impressed, as I knew you would be, with the great report and lesson that he presented in the Bible class hour. We knew it would be, as Charlie Chan used to say, first class. You remember Charlie? <laughs> One of the other brethren in, uh, in Malaysia there who is still a faithful member of the Lord's kingdom in that area of the world. And it was a particular thrill to know that Roger and Donna Campbell would be able to go to Malaysia and spend time there and work with the churches there and now they are back and they're a great couple and they've done a great work and so we're very pleased about the work that's being done not only in Malaysia but of course from Singapore and it radiates as you saw in the report to so many parts of Asia uh, and the heavily populated part of the world that is now being influenced favorably by the work that Four Seas College continues to do uh, with Peter at the helm and his good wife at his side. Uh, Steve mentioned our benevolent uh, effort, and certainly uh, we are pleased that that will expedite the uh, immediate request sometimes that we have here for some immediate help, but certainly, obviously, that is not the extent of our benevolent effort. Uh, we uh, do uh, invite uh, folks to fill out forms if they need help. Well, we have those available, and we do try to be good stewards of the benevolent work that we do and of course we're very much involved now with uh, and continue to be involved with Potter Children's Home and the work uh, there as well but it was particularly good to know that we could refer people in an immediate need uh, without uh, cash uh, being given to help them with some food and 
particularly good that Save-A-Lot does not sell uh, alcohol or cigarettes, and so they cannot buy tobacco or alcohol there, and they cannot redeem that for cash, and so if there is a true need, we feel like this addition to our benevolent effort has uh, helped to expedite uh, those uh, needs. So I appreciate Steve's making, making you all aware of that this morning. I think we had it on the screen, but I also want to mention, too, Roger Comstock, very faithful gospel preacher at Morrison, Tennessee, um, is uh, battling uh, bladder cancer. Uh, that's been diagnosed with Roger. Roger's son is one of the deacons where my son-in-law, Kevin Ruiz, preaches in uh, Maryville. And the Comstock family, Roger is very much involved with the Gospel Broadcasting Network with an excellent program, uh, Shelter in the Time of Storm. And um, he does a great work there and a great work at Morrison. So please remember uh, Roger Comstock uh, in your prayers uh, as well. Many, um, many years ago, back in the 60s, Frank Sinatra pop popularized a song uh, that was entitled That's, That's Life. Many of you may be familiar with that song, and part of the lyrics of that uh, song were, uh, that's life, that's what the people say. You're riding high in April, shot down in May. And I thought about that song as I thought about uh, the lesson that I plan to present this morning about a man of God who was riding high, may not have been April, but he was riding high one day and shot down the next. The man's name was Elijah. And you may recall that in 1 Kings 18, we have a classic battle, if you will, between the God of heaven and the false gods of Baal and the prophets of Baal. 450 prophets of Baal were gathered together at Elijah's instruction as he called for them to be brought forth, and a contest ensued. And that contest was one in which uh, the altar of Baal was set up and wood was laid on it and one of two bulls was ready to be sacrificed and cut in pieces and laid on that altar and... For hour after hour, until the time of the evening sacrifice, the prophets of Baal called upon their God to come down and miraculously and directly consume that sacrifice. And you may recall that Elijah, Elijah at one point mocked them somewhat. Well, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's meditating. Maybe he's gone on a journey. But he's certainly not hearing you. Where is your God? Oh, they even danced around, moved around, jumped around, cut themselves as they were wont to do, and uh, the blood gushed out of their bodies as they cut themselves to, to try to intensify their appeal to a God who could never hear them. And then you recall that Elijah told them to bring the water on his altar that he had rebuilt there, that had been torn down, the Lord's altar, and those stones that were placed there again in that altar, and the bull was cut that he had had, and it was placed there on the wood. But then Elijah did something else that he had not called upon the prophets of Baal to do. He said, bring water, bring water, and dump it on 
the sacrifice to the point that the trench around it was filled with water. And then he said, do that again. And they brought water and doused it again. And then he said, do it one more time. And they did, and they doused it with water again. Absolutely drenched was the wood and everything around it. And then Elijah called upon the God of heaven. And the God of heaven miraculously brought down that fire and consumed that sacrifice. And it had its impact upon the people who had been called to gather there to witness it. And they were very eager at that point in time to say, God, he is God. He is the only God. Well, it was a great victory. Great victory. But when Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, the king at that time, who was a very, very devoted worshiper of this false god Baal, when she heard that her 450 prophets had been slain, she made a determination and sent word to Elijah that by this time tomorrow you're going to be among them. That is, you will be a dead man because of what you've done. And when Elijah got that word, he went from riding high one day to being shot down the next emotionally because he went off into the wilderness, sat down under a juniper tree, and prayed to die. What a complete transformation. What a complete change of emotion from exaltation to total depression. But then an angel of the Lord came to him, touched him, and told him to arise and eat, having provided food. And then he came back the second time, told him to eat more because of the long journey that Elijah was going to make at the instruction of the Lord. The scripture says that Elijah went 40 days and 40 nights in the strength of that food, and then he came to Horeb to the mountain of God, and in a cave there, the word of the Lord came to him and asked a very important question, one that is pertinent for us here at White Oak this morning. He asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? And then God provided Elijah with a manifestation of, of his presence and then asked him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, what, what was Elijah's response the first time he was asked? The first time he was asked, he answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Now, that's why I'm... Here, he said to the Lord, in effect. And so, the Lord told him to go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, provided him with this manifestation of his uh, presence. And he was not in the wind, the Lord was not in the earthquake, and then a fire, the Lord not in the fire, and then a still, small voice. And then, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood in the entrance of the cave, and then that second question came again. What are you doing here, Elijah? And what did Elijah say this time? Very same thing he had said the first time. Nothing had changed. 
despite the reassurance and the manifestation of the Lord's presence with him, he still answered in verse 14 this way, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. I'm the only one left. He was still immersed in a pity party, as we would say, wasn't he? A self-pity party, if you will. But God then told him, I have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And besides that, he then told Elijah, I've got more work for you to do. First of all, you're not alone. Secondly, you shouldn't be praying to die because I have more work for you to do. And again, we need to make sure how we would answer the question if the Lord were to ask us today, what are you doing here? In other words, are you sitting and weeping when there's work to be done? Or are you sowing and reaping? And that's the pertinent question we address this morning. Sitting and weeping or sowing and reaping. And we admit that there's much to weep about today in the Lord's church. There are challenges, indeed, that we face in the Lord's church. There are tragedies that we are aware of individually among God's people and congregationally among God's people. And Certainly this is not the hour for summer soldiers or sunshine patriots or for strictly social Christians as the emphasis seems to be in many places today. It's the time to recognize, as Elijah was called upon to recognize, that there is still work to be done, that there is a need for deep devotion to God, deep devotion to Christ and complete consecration to the Christ and proper preparation to meet the challenges facing the church today. We live in a world that's being sedated by the social and the secular, and the church is being sedated in many places by the social emphasis and by the secular influence. And unless we awaken in those situations, very soon we are going to become if you will, comatose while still conscious, dead while we live, as the scriptures say. Weeping over what is happening to the church is not wrong. That's not wrong at all. In fact, we can read of godly men in scripture who wept over the condition of God's people in their time. They wept. Why is Jeremiah, for example, called the weeping prophet? The answer is obvious, isn't it? The psalmist on one occasion in Psalm 119, verse 136, wrote these words. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. Rivers of waters run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. And let's come to the weeping prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 9 and verse 1 and hear him as he says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears. 
that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. And then again, the same writer in Lamentations 3, verse 48, in very similar words to the psalmist said, My eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. When we come to the New Testament, we see the Apostle Paul weeping over the problems in the Lord's church that were being caused by the false teachers of his day. And you remember as he rehearsed his work with those Ephesian elders, as he called them to himself at Miletus, and in Acts 20, verse 31, he reminded them, Therefore remember that for the space of three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears, with tears. He expressed very similar sentiment to the Philippian church at chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, as he admonished them, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who walk as you have us for a pattern. Here's the contrast. For many walk, he writes, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping. They are the enemies of the cross of Christ. I tell you, even weeping, there are those who are the enemies of the cross, of the cross of Christ. But downcast eyes must not keep looking down. Downcast eyes must look up to God. Downcast eyes have to look up to God for strength, just as Elijah was made to realize in his time of despondency. He, in effect, was told, look up, Elijah. He had just come off of a tremendous victory for God in that contest with the prophets of Baal. And yet, when he got word that his life was going to be taken from him, he descended into the depths of despondency because he was not looking any longer where he needed to look. The psalmist advises, I will lift up my eyes to the hills, or expresses, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. And then he asks, from whence comes my help? It comes from God. I love Isaiah 51 and verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look on the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner, but my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. There's the promise we have as God's people. Through the prophet Isaiah, my salvation, the Lord says, will be forever, and my righteousness, my righteousness will not be abolished. And this passage from the Messianic prophet points us to the salvation which comes through the Messiah and reminds us that his righteousness cannot be taken away. Our lives may be taken away. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28, Do not fear him who is able to kill the body but is not able to destroy the soul. Fear him, rather, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You fear the Lord in the proper sense of that word fear, reverential fear and respect and reverence, and you look up to God. 
and you look to Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. And if we look to the Christ as the author and finisher of our faith, we will not fail in our mission here on earth. And so the key question, a crucial question, is where are you looking? Where are we looking? There was a time in Jesus' ministry when his disciples were concerned about the master's physical need for food. The incident is recorded in John chapter 4. You remember the encounter of the Lord with the woman at the well. And in John 4, 31 beginning, the disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. They were concerned because he had not had food. And he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? They were strictly thinking of physical food. Didn't understand immediately what the Lord was talking about. Jesus said to them, my food, as the New King James renders it, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And then he asked them, do you not say that there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. That's the work that Peter talked about this morning. The work of sowing and reaping together. Of having fellowship together in that great work in which he and Puifun are involved and so many other works in which this congregation is involved, or involved, the, the works we are involved in. The disciples, yes, they were concerned that Jesus had not eaten, but the Lord redirected their thinking. He redirected their thinking. Look at the fields, Jesus said. Don't look at the food, look at the fields. And in Matthew thirteen thirty-eight. In the parable of the tares of the field, Jesus identifies the world as the field. The whole world is the field. That's what Peter reminded us of this morning in Bible class. The whole world, make disciples of all the nations, preach the gospel to every creature. And so Jesus tells us as Christians, lift up your eyes and look at the world. In John 6, 27, Jesus said, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. And so, our tears, our tears over the trials and tribulations facing the Lord's church today are well-warranted tears, but those tears must not cause us to sit down under the juniper tree, as it were, and pray to die. We must do as the Lord says. And what does the Lord say? Weep? Yes, weep. But don't stop working. Weep, but don't stop working. Jesus, on one occasion, came to the city of Jerusalem, looked over that city, and he wept over it because of their rejection 
of the only one who could save them from eternal damnation. But he never stopped working to bring them to the realization that he was indeed their Savior. And so we can weep, but we dare not stop working. As Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to what? Finish his work. We've got to finish. In John 9, 4, Jesus said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. And so as Peter again pointed out in Bible class this morning, the commission he gave to the apostles initially to preach the gospel to the world is our commission also. As Peter again pointed out from Acts 8 beginning at verse 1, when the great first great persecution came upon the church, the disciples were scattered. The apostles were not. They remained in Jerusalem, but those who were scattered... Men and women, Christians, went everywhere what? Waiting for the apostles to get there so that they could preach. No. They went everywhere preaching the word. They went everywhere doing what they could to spread the borders of the kingdom. And so must we. The world population in 1830 was one billion. That was the world population in 1830. In 1930 it had doubled to 2 billion. But now it is over 7 billion. 7 billion. And about 107 or so are dying every day? No. Every hour? No. Every minute? Yes. About 107 every minute are dying. That's why we need men like Peter Chen and women like Pui Fun at his side. That's why we need money, support for men like Peter and others. That's why we need the media. That's why we need Good News Today, the program that White Oak oversees, and every other good program in the gospel broadcasting network and every media outreach effort because we can't meet the challenge of a burgeoning population unless we utilize every means and every man available to us. But you know, we'll never have the men, we'll never have the money, and we'll never use the media as extensively and effectively as we can until we have the motivation. We've got to be motivated. Many of you know David Farr, fine gospel preacher, edits the Carolina Messenger, has preached the gospel for many years. His, his mother, in her last years, had the Bible read to her by a friend that she met in the assisted living facility where she spent the last days of her life. Sister Farr had to be assisted down to the common living room where the residents gathered at times and she became friends with this gentleman and he realized that uh, she couldn't read the Bible for herself any longer and so he asked would you like me to read the Bible to you this man was not a Christian would you like for me to read the scriptures to you and she said she would and so he did and as he read she began to comment and 
taught this man out of denominationalism in the process of his reading the scriptures to her. And he obeyed the gospel, as far as I know, was faithful ever since. That's motivation into one's very last days. It's been our privilege, the Dearman family privilege, to, to be blessed by some elderly women, although I never knew Sister Farr personally, but to be blessed by some women in their later years who were godly women, and many of you are sitting right here today. I remember Georgia Hamer, Georgia Hamer in Houston, and Janice would go out to the assisted living place out there where Sister Hamer was a resident, beyond 90 years old, I think, at that time. I think we celebrated her 90th birthday out there one day. But uh, before that class, Sister Hamer would take her walker and she would go down the halls of the assisted living facility there, knocking on doors and inviting the residents to the class that Janice was teaching. It would have been very easy for her to have said, I'll do well to get there myself, let alone stop at every door and invite others to come. But she did that, and ultimately at least one, one non-Christian on whose door she had no doubt not, became a Christian, became a child of God. I once met a brother down in Alabama. We were down for a homeschooling uh, event, the Roundhouse event down there years ago when we still had Sam with us in homeschool, I guess it was, and met this brother down in Alabama who had been in a terrible traffic accident. He was a UPS truck driver. And he was so devoted to attending the services, he didn't want to miss Wednesday night. And so he rearranged his schedule with UPS so that he wouldn't have to miss Wednesday night. And he did that so he could take the, the late night run. He had to take the late night run in order to do that. And that was a more dangerous one for driving. And one night, sure enough, driving down Interstate 65 in limited vis vis visibility because of fog, he hit a truck that was stopped in the road and had put out no flares, no reflectors, no nothing to warn other vehicles. And he hit that truck, and as I recall, the brother said his truck, his own truck, caught fire, and he could not free himself. But there was another driver who had stopped to assist in the first accident, and when this brother's truck collided with the one in front and the fire broke out, that man who had stopped to help the first driver was able to pull this brother from his truck and save his life. And later, the brother himself was able to set up a study with this man and his wife, taught them the truth, and baptized them into Christ. What a wonderful attitude in the midst of adversity. Because you see, what could have happened to this brother is this. He could have said, after this terrible accident, I rearranged my schedule, took the, the more difficult and dangerous route, and yet God allowed me to have this accident and nearly lose my life. Why did God allow that to happen? I'm finished with the Lord. No, instead, he pulled or snatched the one who had snatched him out of this fiery truck he snatched that man out of the fire, so to speak, by bringing him 
to Christ. What motivates such people? I believe it's well summarized in one of my favorite passages in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The Lord says weep, but don't stop working. And you know something else we need to appreciate? The Lord says weep, but don't stop warning. Weep, but don't stop warning. We shed tears over the tragedy of departures from the faith. And we must continually sound the warning about threats to the body of Christ. Those passages we looked at earlier, Acts 20, 31, Philippians 3, 17, and 18. Paul said, I warned, but I warned with tears. I warned with tears. There's the beautiful balance that must characterize every child of God. It cannot be a situation where someone says, don't warn, don't warn, weep, but don't warn. You can't do one without the other. You've got to warn and weep. In other words, we must commit to be compassionate, but we commit to be compassionate without compromise when it comes to those who are opposed to the church, and when it comes to those who have left the body of Christ. We love the sinner, but we have to hate the sin which divides and destroys precious souls. And that's why the lost sheep effort in which we have been involved at White Oak and are still involved is an effort that we cannot ignore. Nor can we stop short in doing everything that we can that God has commanded us to do to reclaim those precious souls. And that involves discipline. We must follow Jude's inspired advice when he wrote, and on some have compassion making a distinction, but others save with fear pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. There's nothing wrong with weeping unless it causes us to stop working. There's nothing wrong with weeping unless it causes us to stop warning and to stop doing everything that God tells us in the New Testament to do to reclaim lost souls. Sitting and weeping instead of sowing and reaping will be productive of much evil and of no good whatsoever. And so the rivers of waters that flow from our eyes, because men do not keep God's law, must never blind us to the harvest of souls still reachable with the pure seed of the kingdom. And souls who were initially reached but who've left the fold who may be reachable again and may be able to be brought home. And so we plant in hope we rejoice over every precious soul that responds to it and brings forth fruit for the master. Look up. Look up, said he. There is a sea of souls outside your door. Content with me he cannot be if I those souls ignore. I dare not wait. Could be too late. 
Tomorrow may never be. Oh, tragic fate. There's none so great as to be lost eternally. This morning, if you've been sitting and weeping and not sowing and reaping, then repent. Take comfort in the words of the prophet. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner, but my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. It's proper to weep, but we've got to not just weep. We've got to work. We've got to warn. Sitting and weeping or sowing and reaping. But you know, there's another category. Sitting and sleeping. Because I'm afraid there are those in the Lord's kingdom who haven't even reached the point of being concerned enough to weep. They're not sitting and weeping over what's happening to the church. They're just sitting and sleeping because their actions indicate that they do not have the kind of concern that would even cause them to shed tears over the challenges that face us. Let's make certain we are not sitting and sleeping and that we're not just sitting and weeping. But the description that would be an appropriate one for all of us here this morning would be sowing and reaping. You can't do that if you're not a part of the harvest. That is, if you have not obeyed the gospel, have not believed that Jesus is the Christ, repented of your sins, confessed him to be the Christ, and been buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins, you have not yet been brought into that harvest of souls that we are seeking all of our lives to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you can be this very hour. You can come home to your first love as a wayward child of God who has been sitting and sleeping or sitting and weeping but not sowing and reaping, not active in the kingdom. You don't need public repentance if any sin is of a private nature, but if you need to come home to your first love because you know that you have sinned in a way to bring reproach upon the church, come home. But let us all determine that for as long as there is breath within us, that we'll do whatever we can to be among those 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. If you need to respond, will you come now as we stand to sing?